Uh, I, I just want to say something before before I, I start doing whatever it is I, I do up here. Uh, I've been I have led worship. I have been leading worship for 13 years, uh, and it wasn't till about six months ago that I've ever ever gone to a community of musicians and said, um, I think it's time to start writing songs. Um, for whatever reason, for 12 and a half, 13 years, there's always been this barrier uh, that I just didn't feel like it was, it was sort of my place or our place to unleash uh, a body of, of songwriting to a community. Um, but I felt something just kind of switch inside me about six months ago. And so I went to the songwriters of our community and I said, it's time. Uh, it's time for us to write songs for us. And I just want to celebrate that for just a moment because we have unleashed a floodgate of music to this community. And it's not just us. These songs come from you guys as well, and it comes from the conversations that we have with you and the journeys we take with you and the way that, that you love us and the way we love you. And so uh, thank you for being a part of it, and all I got to tell you is that, uh, uh, you know, hopefully, yes, there's a record coming, and yes, we will celebrate that together. So that's just, I just wanted to um, I'm I'm... I am blessed. I am blessed to be able to hang out with some very cool and talented musicians, and so. Um, but yeah, that's what I normally do. If this is your first time at E3, I'm usually over there on that microphone. Uh, I get a chance to speak with you guys occasionally, and I'm going to talk to you tonight with the second week of this series called POV, uh, Point of View, and basically what we're doing is walking through the birth stories of Jesus from the different Gospels. And with each story, we're taking the point of view of a character in that story and just unpacking it a little bit. And I wanted to start our time together by basically explaining, from my point of view, why we're doing this and why it matters to me. And I think, hopefully, why it matters to you. And I wanted to do this with some art and to basically talk about some thoughts I've had recently about art um, this is a painting from my house. It was given to us by a friend of mine who, who made it uh, probably, thir uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, it's, it's a piece of a combination of found objects, and then it's, it's overlaid with, uh, with paint, and then I think the whole thing is shellacked with some type of cornstarch, actually, I think. Um, it's a very, very important piece to us. We love it, and, and the friend is a, is a dear friend. To us, but I want to bring out to you guys the way that you interact with a painting, and this is just from what I've thought about this week. I'm no uh, art theorist, but I want to suggest to you that interacting with a painting is a sort of two-dimensional, uh, almost flat experience. And what I mean by that is that uh, the painting, this painting, exists on sort of a flat plane. Right along, right along the, the, the axis that the painting sits on. So what Amanda sees from the painting is essentially the same thing, you know, that Michael or Liza sees of the painting. You see the same things that they do. 
You're in this existence. There's no difference in the experience of the painting for you. It's got red squares on it and some other stuff, right? It's no different. It exists sort of in this, uh, in this arena. But if I walk behind the painting and I'm no longer there, my experience of the painting doesn't, uh, doesn't jive with what you guys are saying. I'm looking at a piece of plywood. I see no colors. Uh, it, maybe it's a piece of canvas in a different, a different piece. The painting as, as an experience exists for you guys out here, and everybody pretty much has the same experience. You see red squares, you see different colors, you see some textures. Now, sculpture as a medium of art is an entirely different thing. It's a, most sculpture is a 360 degree experience. Meaning that if you walk into a museum and you see the statue of David or this, you see the Pieta or you see uh, any number of great sculptures, you walk around them. You interact with them all around. And this is just a piece that I stumbled across at a department store. It doesn't have any meaning. Except this, um, to just point out to you the way this works, okay? If you're sitting along this plane of the sculpture, what you see is a very flat bar, essentially, with some circles coming out of it. Your point of view, that's what it says to you. But because sculpture is 360 degrees, different points of view are sort of uh, are brought to bear. And so if I'm walking around the sculpture, I can have a different point of view on the sculpture. And Bonnie may only see this flat bar that's up and down, but I can tell Bonnie from this perspective, Bonnie, it's a man, and he's carrying two rings, and he might be naked, but that's not important right now. As you walk around the, the sculpture, as you engage in different points of view, you see different things of the sculpture. Is it the same sculpture that you're looking at? Yes. But I see something different than you do. Some sculptures, uh, you will interact with them from different points of view, but there may be that one point of view that you come to that everything starts to make sense. As you interact with a piece of art that you can just walk around and, and, and approach from different places, there might be one place in particular that takes your breath away. And you go, oh my gosh, now I get it. Now I understand this. A couple weeks ago, I was reading either uh, something, I can't even remember who it was from. It was from an artist or an architect. And he said, you know the thing about art the thing about art is that it changes the world. And we think about that, and it's kind of like an easy statement to roll off the tongue, sort of in a revolutionary way. But I want to suggest to you tonight that it's true. Because if you see a piece of art, and it takes your breath away, it can make you look at the world differently. It might just change something inside of you, but if something changes inside of you, guess what? The world has changed. If something changes in your life, the world has changed. So, the whole point of doing this series is that we are essentially taking a walk around the birth stories of Jesus. And we want to look at it from different points of view. And it's our desire that we get to a point of view 
where you look at a piece of art, you look at this Jesus, and you see something that you've never seen before. And ideally, your world's changed. Ideally, your, your, your breath is taken away. And you're like, I have never, ever thought of that before. It's always Jesus. It's the same Jesus. It's the birth stories. But by looking at it from different points of view, it's our desire that maybe something comes out of it that maybe never came out of it before. So uh, that's why. That's why I'm excited about this. That's why we're doing it. And I'm going to talk to you guys tonight from uh, talking about the birth stories from a point of view about a guy named Herod. And we're going to learn about him in just a second. But for now, I'd like to invite you guys to pray with me uh, before we go on any further. So if you would feel comfortable bowing your heads, I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, I know you're here right now, God. And uh, I thank you that, you that you just come into the room whenever uh, a couple of us are, get, uh, are together. And that when you hear us sing, Lord, that you respond to us. And you respond to us in love and, and you give back to us more, infinitely more than we give to you. So God, I thank you for that. I thank you for your presence. And I, and I ask, God, that you stay here with us. I pray that you quiet our hearts. And I pray that you open up our eyes and open up our ears. And even, even my ears and my eyes, God, that in these moments we have, that we might see a glimpse of you. And that we might come away changed. And God, I just pray that the, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pure in your sight. Amen. All right, well, we're going to take a look at uh, a story out of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you, wanna, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, that's great. If not, the words will be on the screen. And I'm just going to read the scripture and then I'm going to just talk about it briefly. So, picking up in verse 1, Matthew writes this. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they wrote, uh, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. All right, that's the text. Um, I'm just going to bring out a couple interesting things that I think Matthew is doing here. And the first thing I want to point out to you is the way Matthew talks about insiders and outsiders. In fact, the gospel stories are, are soaked full of, of this notion of who is on the inside of God's movement and who's on the outside. And I want to bring to your attention the fact of of the magi, of these wise men. We're told that they come from the east, you know, far beyond Israel, probably Persia or someplace. To be really blunt and to be really succinct, these guys are the outsiders of outsiders. 
To state it strongly, they're pagans. They're Gentiles. They're the folks that come in sometimes to our churches and we're like, you know, sorry, man, like the leather shop is down the street. I guess you got, they made a mistake. These are the folks that don't look comfortable with God's people. You're like, why are you here? And constantly in the Gospels, the writers are saying, who do you think's on the inside of God's, of God's movement? And who do you think's on the outside? So you've got the Magi, these wise men who have come from far, far away. But what are they doing? They're just trying to find this baby. They're trying to find this king. They've heard, and they're like, we're just coming. I know we're not supposed to be here. I don't know what it means, but we've just heard there's a king that's been born. So we're just following, and we're trying to find him. And then you have those guys who are sort of the outsiders of the outsiders, and you have that contrasted with this guy named Herod, the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel right now. And him and the religious leaders. And what do they do in response to the news? They call a meeting. They have a meeting. I'm sure it was an awesome meeting. But what were they not doing? They weren't walking around going, we just got to find him. We just got to find him. So you have the outsiders who are, as best they can, walking towards Jesus, trying to find this baby, trying to find this Messiah, while you have the ultimate insiders, the king of the nation, and the leaders in Jerusalem who are sitting having meetings. And as you read the Gospels, I would just challenge you to constantly look at, like, how do the Gospel writers set up who's on the inside of the movement of the people of God and who's on the outside? Because a lot of times, who you think's on the inside ends up on the outside and vice versa. So Herod calls his meeting, and the text says that he is deeply, what? Disturbed. Okay. Get this straight. He's the king of the Jews. They have been waiting for the Messiah to come for centuries. Is there not a sense that Herod should say, he's finally coming Let's have a party. Let's throw open the gates of Jerusalem because we have hungered for this for decades, for centuries. Oh my gosh. Somebody tweet this. Is that his reaction? No. So you instantly find out something is wrong in Herod's perspective of what's about to happen. Mark's been talking for a, a few weeks, uh, probably a couple months, about the difference between salvation culture and gospel culture. And I want to say it pretty, uh, pretty succinctly, pretty strongly, that if Jesus' coming was just so that his people could go to heaven, was just so that his people could get their sins forgiven and feel really great about themselves and have great self-esteem, Herod has nothing to worry about, does he? Herod's just got a lot of people who are hanging out, waiting to, die, waiting to die. Awesome. Business as usual. But I would suggest to you that Herod knows a little bit more about Jesus than sometimes we do. And that is that Herod knows that gospel people are dangerous people to a king. 
that if you're just saved, if you're just going to heaven, you're not dangerous to a king at all. But if you're a gospel person, and this king named Jesus is getting into your life and getting into your business, you are going to threaten a king like Herod. And that's really, really important to know. There was a movie that came out in the 80s called uh, Highlander. Anybody? 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 What was the catchphrase of Highlander? There can be only one. And Herod knows there can be only one. There can be only one king. And if the king has come, if the Messiah has come, his days are numbered and his clock is ticking down. Tick, 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 tick. So Herod is right to be deeply disturbed. Because Herod's days are, are drawing to a close and his way of life is threatened. You see, Herod, I believe, I would put it to you tonight, Herod has his own gospel. It's the gospel according to Herod. And you know what it looks like? It looks like this. I'm the king. Bam. That's what the gospel of Herod is. It's not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel according to Herod is not the gospel of Jesus. And it's an alternate gospel to the same de to the degree that you would say, you know what, this gospel, this good news should affect everything of my life. It should affect every decision I make. If you believe that, then we have all kinds of gospels floating around. And Herod's got a gospel too. Herod says, my way is the right way because I'm the king. That's my good news. How you like that? And it's just one sort of alternative gospel in the world. Herod has an alternative gospel. He has his own good news. And it's not the only one out there. They almost all boil down to three things. Power, sex, money. If you want to know what the Gospels are of our age, that's what they are. And there's different forms. They show up in different ways, but they usually boil down to how much power I want in this world. That's what's going to save me. That's what's going to drive my decisions. Sex. How good do I look? How good does my partner look? How many partners do I have? How good am I with the opposite sex? And money. How big is my house? How big is my 401k? How new is my car? These are our alternative Gospels. And this baby that, that comes in, in Matthew chapter 2, threatens every single one of them. Herod represents power. But those are the other two, and I dare say that most of us in this room would look at those three and go, I got a little familiarity with those. I've interacted with power and sex and money a little bit, and sometimes it's tempting to say that's my good news. I can't sit up here and tell you that I've never, ever lived my life according to that good news. I can't. I'd be lying. I have struggled with every one of those gospels. You know, with me, I'll tell you straight up, that power manifests itself with me of how good I play that guitar, how well I sing, and how many books I read. Because those are things that I like to do, and they're things that I'm rightfully proud of. But when it turns into the way I define myself and the what drives my decisions, it has become a gospel that, that I should not subscribe to. And I think every one of us, if we thought about our lives for a little bit, we would say, yeah, been there, done that, maybe just today. So that's what Herod uh, represents. And the reason it is so dangerous 
comes out in the text. But, uh, what happens is that Herod tells the wise men, you know what, tell me where you're going, because I sure would like to come worship this baby with you. And they don't do it, because they know Herod's up to shenanigans. And so they don't tell him where they've gone. They don't tell him where the baby is. They hightail it back home. Herod is left without this, this king that has come into the world, without him in his hands. And listen to the way he reacts. Verse 16 says this, Herod was what? Furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. And he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Now two things that also come out here in the text before we go on. The first thing you have to know is that Herod was a bad, bad man. And we know this from historical texts that would tell you that this king murdered three of his sons. That this king murdered a wife of his. And my favorite story, that this king, when he was on his deathbed, he became concerned that Israel would not mourn his passing enough. Because he was a rotten guy anyway. And he became concerned, hey, no one's going to feel sorry. No one's going to cry in Israel. So you know what he decided to do? He went to Jericho. And he had the leaders of that community, business leaders, community leaders, he had them slaughtered. So that somebody would be mourning on his death. He didn't care if they mourned for him. He just wanted weeping and wailing. So when he, was, when he died, they went to Jericho and they killed a list of people. So that somebody somewhere in Israel would be sad. So killing some children, some babies, is not out of character for Herod. But there's something else going on. Because the Gospel of Matthew in particular likes to retell a really important story from Israel's past. And that's the story of this thing called the Exodus. Now the Exodus was this defining moment in Israel's life where they were an enslaved people held captive and God set them free from the Egyptians. Now, if you know the story, you know that that movement of God's people centered around a guy named Moses. And Moses almost didn't make it into manhood because of what? Because there was an evil king named Pharaoh that tried to murder every Jewish baby boy. And Matthew constantly, subtly goes back to the Exodus story in his gospel, in the, particularly in the birth narratives of Jesus. And that's what he's doing right here. Because now there's a new evil king going around murdering Jewish babies. It used to be Pharaoh. Now it's Herod. And God is waiting to unleash a freedom movement, a liberation movement. Something amazing is going to happen. God's going to set his people free. But first, there is this evil force in the world that is bent on eradicating life. But Jesus escapes, obviously, just like Moses does. So we know that's Herod's character. But, but the deal is that Herod has this alternative gospel and you know, there's always something lurking behind them. 
All Herod does here is show the true colors of the gospel according to Herod. All he does. And the danger of living your life of, according to an alternative gospel, according to the gospel of power, or the gospel of sex, or the God of money, is that when push comes to shove, that gospel's true colors will come flying out. And really unpleasant things tend to happen when that occurs. Herod was just a king, but he was living his life according to the gospel that, that the king and power and might makes right. And all the time, what's ultimately behind Herod's back is a knife, is a gun, is a strategy that says, I'll do anything to preserve my way of looking at the world. From this point of view, from walk to, walking this earth a little bit to maybe some folks who haven't walked this earth a long time, let me tell you, every alternative gospel is like this. Every way of looking at the world is like this. When push comes to shove, it will show its true colors. If you subscribe to the gospel according to money, guess what? You will never be rich enough. You'll never have enough new cars. You'll never have a big enough house. I just got to tell you, I've been really, really poor in this earth, uh, on this earth, and it becomes, and I'm just as tempted by it as anybody else. But you can never have enough. And what's more, you're only one disaster away from losing it all. One disaster. And then you're just left with maybe a bunch of stuff and maybe not anything. If you subscribe to the gospel according to sex, what can I tell you? You may find yourself in spaces with people who are constantly leaving you because they don't love you and they don't value you the way you deserve to be valued, the way God values you. And the gospel of sex, when push comes to shove, you will find yourself alone and empty. So what do you do if you're, if you're playing with this, if we all flirt with this, because I believe we all do? You know, you have to ask yourself, um, what's going on with my good news? What, what, how do I look at the world and what what is good about this good news? Because the thing about good news, the thing about gospel, it's got to be good news. The gospel according to power is not good news because eventually it's got a gun or a hammer associated with it. These are metaphors. You know, the gospel according to sex is not good news. The gospel according to money is not good news. Ah, but there's another gospel, isn't there? The thing about good news is that it should be really good. And the gospel of this baby that comes into the earth, this Jesus that comes into earth, you know what's lurking behind the gospel of Jesus? You know what's waiting for? You know what Jesus has behind his back when push comes to shove? He's got a cross. He's got a cross. He dies. If you didn't know the end of the story. Sorry, spoiler alert. When push comes to shove, the gospel of Jesus just has Jesus on a cross. And it says this. When good news is really good, I think that things like humility and saying, Jesus, I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect. Uh, of saying brokenness. Jesus, I've, I, God, I've really messed up. Oh, not only have I messed up, I, I'm still messed up. That says, I'm willing to rest, God. It's not in my nature to rest. I kind of like to work. I kind of like to, to, to strive for things. 
but this cross, I, I can't get around, so maybe I just have to rest in it. And then the last thing I would say is when good news is really good, it just says, surrender. Just surrender. Just surrender. Now, that's harder than sometimes we get it credit, give it credit for. Because the thing about the gospel of Jesus is it does require something pretty big. It requires you to die. It requires you to die and to die daily. A guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that the cross of Jesus bids me to come and die. And what you have to die to is every other gospel in your life. Every other gospel in your life. I wish that once you signed on to the Jesus thing, that all this other stuff went away. Or let me put it in personal terms. I wish that when I signed on to the Jesus thing, all those other things went away. But guess what? They didn't. Every day. I wake up to a world where the gospel of power, sex, and money is active and inviting me. I don't know if they have four spiritual laws, but, you know, like, you get evangelized by these gospels every day. And every day, you have to make the choice to die again to these gospels. And that's not easy. But it's necessary. And what the gospel of Jesus says is that if you die to those things... Uh, there is a promise on the other side of life. The promise of the alternative gospel is emptiness, is loneliness, is some form of death. The gospel of Jesus, you die a little now, but you find life on and on and on and on. One of my favorite bands and one of the most important bands in American music is a band named Wilco. And they have a song called A War on War. Uh, and in that song, the writer talks about you have, to, you have to learn to die. You have to constantly die to yourself in the, for the agenda of, of the song, what they're talking about. You have to put your your way of looking at the world aside in service of the song, in service of your art. And the gospel is a similar type of situation. You put yourself aside, these other gospels that you subscribe to, in the, toward the agenda of Jesus in the world. Turn away from Herod and turn towards Jesus. Um, as I was preparing for this and, and just doing some reading, I came across this poem I want to share part of it with you guys tonight. Um, it's by T.S. Eliot, who is one of the great poets of, of uh, the English language in recent era. And he wrote a poem called the, the Journey of the Magi. And it was written from the perspective of the wise men, who kind of at the end of their life was, were looking back on what they did and what they experienced. I want to read the last stanza of the poem to you because it just gets at this idea of, of where you have to die, but where you find life, where death is, where life is, and, and trying to understand how to choose those things. So um, it's also going to be on the screen. It goes like this. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again. But set down this, set down this. 
Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but it thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. And we returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease there in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. When you walk out of these doors, when you walk to class, when you walk to your jobs, you will see alien people clutching their gods of power, sex, and money. And it will be so tempting to sign on to those gospels and say, I'll do it. But at the end of those things, when their true colors are revealed, you will not find what you're looking for. And you should be glad of another death now, dying to yourself and to, your and to these other gospels and looking to the gospel of Jesus. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, this is heavy. Uh, Herod's point of view is a, mis is, is a mistake, but God, we all flirt with it every day. Lord, for any of my brothers and sisters here that would say, I have, I have signed on to those other gospels, God, I pray that you would show them the path they're on, and help them to change their way of thinking about you and your gospel. Help them to find life in death. And God, help us to never, as best we can, to never stray from the true gospel of our dying Savior who rose again. Amen. Wow. <laughs>